Now, I, I got to tell you right off the bat, if you have not yet finished the series, there will be probably some spoilers involved in what we're going to talk about. I, 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 you're supposed to announce spoiler alerts now so people don't go crazy when you give away the ending. So there probably will be some spoilers over the next few minutes. But regardless, if you have been watching, if you're aware of this, if you finished watching it, if you binged watched like so many people did, you... We'll certainly know my first guest tonight. Dean Strang was one of the two lawyers who represented Stephen Avery in his trial for murder, and he joins me now. Mr. Strang, thanks for doing this tonight. Scott, thank you for having me. Uh, let's start right off the top, because there was a story I saw today that was uh, online in which you are quoted saying that, and the, the word is in quote, there's a mass of new evidence that has emerged that you believe will eventually maybe lead to a new trial for Stephen Avery. Is that true? Well, the, the word mass I used, but I didn't use evidence. Um, I used leads and potential information. And there certainly has been a mass of that sort of, um, you know, material uh, for Jerry Budine and I or whoever uh, represents Stephen Avery, uh, you know, as part of the team, um, to, to sift through, to look at, to try to put in uh, priorities. So uh, Stephen's lawyers or lawyer going forward um, will have a lot of work sort of working, sifting through that information and those leads to see whether there is evidence, um, <clears throat> at least, you know, the sort of evidence that might support a motion for a new trial. You are, or you have been his defense lawyer, so you're paid to fight for him. You're paid to put out his position and do your best for him. At least that's what most defense lawyers in the story did anyway. Um, but in your heart of hearts, do you believe that Stephen Avery is innocent? In my heart of hearts, I've never been sure. Um, I, I really, you know, and that's not a good place to be. I, I've got really deep doubts Um about whether here an innocent man may be sitting in in prison. Um, Went into the case with those, had a front row seat throughout the six or seven weeks of trial, heard every word, uh, and came out with doubts about his guilt, uh, at least as strong as those I went in holding. And eight and a half years later, nothing has allayed those doubts. I, I, I really do have concern that they're, you know, that he may be innocent, but I, I have no way of knowing that. But it seems as though those doubts are echoed and shared by an awful lot of people, and, and certainly this this series has, has led to those. We've seen that online. There's been an explosion. You could not possibly have had any expectation that this whole thing would have exploded like it did, even though you knew the series was coming. You're right about that. You're absolutely <laughs> right about that, Scott. I I couldn't have anticipated, you know, either the quality or the quantity of interest um, in this film. Did you Did you get to preview it before it showed up on Netflix, or were you watching it like everyone else? Uh, no, I didn't preview it before it showed up, and yes, I did watch it like everyone else. My wife and I got a little bit of a delayed start. I think we probably started... I don't know, three or four days after it um, became available on Netflix. And had you already been started to get besieged by comments? The the very night this series or this film was released, the very night um, at 6.30 Central, 
time, so 7.30 Eastern time, I got my first email from a gentleman on the East Coast who had been homesick from work, he reported, that day and, you know, had occupied his time by watching all 10 hours of this. And (laughs) since that first email, you know, that very night, um, it has not let up, not yet. When you were fighting this case, were you and Jerry Buting seen as two guys who were fighting on the side of the angels in this case, or has the release of this documentary swayed the public narrative to make you now the good guys? We certainly were not seen as being on the side of the angels or as being good guys, you know, back in 2005 through 2007 uh, when the case was ongoing. Um, Not at all. Um, in fact, the contrary. And now there are, you know, sharply divided opinions um, on Stephen Avery's guilt or innocence, and I think sharply divided opinions on the role of defense counsel um, in our criminal justice system. That role is not well understood. Um, that's a failing on the part of lawyers, I think, largely. Um, and you know, even when it is understood, I think people differ sharply on what the what the proper role of um, a, you know a defense lawyer ought to be. Um, so well, there is, there is no universal view on this that I can detect. Well, but understanding that, I mean, there are a lot of surveys that go out every year and they ask what, you know, what are the least trusted or least admired professions? And and there are times when defense attorney shows up on those along with journalists, I'll be honest. I mean, we're politician there too. There's, but why then knowing that, knowing that you may not necessarily be getting currying public favor and not knowing how this court this this case was going to go. Why did you agree to let the filmmakers follow you around and have this kind of access? Because it's very unusual. Well, I'm not running for office. I'm not trying to be popular. I do have a duty as someone who's been lucky enough to to have a law degree. You know, to work in criminal justice. I've got a duty to help the public understand how the system really works, to try to shine a light on its weaknesses, its flaws, ideally point out its strengths or acknowledge its strengths along the way, and let people see and understand the real role of, you know, non-fictional lawyers. Um, and, and, you know, that won't impress many people. And... That won't satisfy many people, but, you know, you you can neither praise nor criticize very fairly until you understand something about the reality. But you ran a real risk, though. You ran a real risk that, again, not knowing how this was going to go, that you could have looked really, really bad by opening yourself this way. Well, it's in my power to look bad or look good, I guess, at mm. least um, by my lights. I, I can conduct myself in a way um, that, I, that I think appropriate, or I can conduct myself inappropriately. And, you know, no one, no one can um, make me do things I shouldn't do. So I, I viewed that as within my power. I, of course, didn't know how the story was going to turn out in real time as that case was playing out, and I certainly didn't know what point of view 
the filmmakers would take or, or what part of the story they would tell. Um, but I thought, you know, it was very clear early on that they were bright, they were thoughtful, and they were honest with us. So, you know, um, beyond that, it, it was on me to to try to do what I was supposed to be doing. Just before we get to the case itself, did you get paid by Netflix as well for this, or was it just your legal fees that you got from the Avery family? No, I, I, I of course I didn't get paid by Netflix or by the filmmakers, and and won't. Um, you know, that's that's not how a documentary works, or at least it's not how I'm ever going to work with a documentary. Um, in terms of being paid, I got Jerry and I got a, a fee back in. Um, early 2006. That was a one-time fee. Uh, we burned through that. Uh, you know, that was long gone by the time we got to trial. Um, and then, there were, you know, there were expenses on top of that, but we anticipated that going in. Um, we thought it was a, you know, it was a case that if you're serious about um, defending people in trouble and against whom horrible accusations are made, you should want this case. You should be there if you're invited to be there. A few minutes ago when I asked you in your heart of hearts whether you thought he was innocent, and and you were very honest with that, um, we know from recently when this has come out that the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, has publicly a number of times talked about how he believes there was evidence left out of this that skewed the public's view, that that the public didn't see all the evidence that was against Stephen Avery that was brought forward in court. Does he have a legitimate claim there? Were there things left out that would have been likely in your mind to skew people's opinion and make them more likely to believe he was guilty? Well, of course he's right that there was a lot left out of the film, but it wasn't just evidence for the state or against Stephen Avery. It was also evidence for Stephen Avery. And, you know, if you think about it, Scott, Six weeks of trial, five days a week, full days. You're talking about over 200 hours Mm. of actual evidence at that trial. This film devoted a pretty lavish three-plus hours to one trial. You know, it devoted to this one trial about the same amount of time that the epic film Dr. Zhivago devoted to the entire Russian Revolution. (laughs) That's true. And so, but... But three hours is three hours. It's not 200 hours or 220 hours. Um, so you, they had to make editorial decisions about what to include and what to omit. And to my eye, having sat through this trial in the front row, um, you know, the strongest points the state had in evidence, argument, and, and its contentions were included in this film, the strongest points and evidence that the defense had was included or were included in this film, and less significant points on both sides were necessarily omitted. That's to my eye. And, you know, every if Ken Kratz were a filmmaker and he would put on his beret and get behind the camera, I have no doubt he would make some different editorial decisions. So would I. So would you. So would any other filmmaker. But that doesn't mean that these two filmmakers did a bad job or made bad editorial judgments, or made unfair judgments. There were some some things that, I, and when you talk about this show with people, there are things that come up, and, and you would know what they are. And, and for me, one of the ones that leaps off the screen right away was the scene in which Jerry was in the evidence room, and when you, they were there to open up the blood vial. Did anything, because we didn't really see in court 
what happened with some of these sort of flagrant or like things that catch you, make your eyeballs bug out. Were there explanations for things like the vial of what happened to it? Or, because we didn't really see that. Did, was it explained or did it just sort of slide under the radar? No, there, you know, and that's, that's an example of defense evidence that didn't make it into the film. And I'm not being critical of that. Again, they had to make editorial judgments. But no, the state never did explain satisfactorily or in any way how that uh, styrofoam container came to be slit, the seal on it, how it came to be, you know, unsealed. Uh, the state never did explain the, the syringe hole or pinhole in the top of the stopper on that vial or the little, you know, small spatters of blood around it, which would have been from extracting uh, a syringe from the vial. Those those went without explanation. They were explored on cross-examination. They were explored in closing argument. You were not permitted by the judge, as I understand, to bring forward any theory of who did it as an alternate suspect. Did you have someone, though, in mind that had you been able to, that you were going to bring forward? We had four specific possible alternate culprits um, as to whom we were prepared to offer evidence. And you're right, the judge excluded that. In in other words, he, he barred us from naming names and from offering evidence as to specific possible third-party culprits. The judge did not bar us from exploring, you know, investigative avenues not taken by the state or asserting, you know, evidence that suggested reasonable doubt of Stevens' guilt. So I want to be fair about that. Um, but, but the you know, the short answer to your question is not one, but four um, potential alternate potential alternate culprits. Did any of them appear in the movies in this in the series? Um, would we have seen them if we watched? <laughs> you know, to do that would be to come pretty close to naming names. And eight and a half years after the fact, I don't think that's fair. Um, and I don't want to feed armchair sleuthing here because that sort of <clears throat> that sort of you know developing a hunch and then looking for evidence to support the hunch is really the same thinking error that I think the police made um, in this investigation so i don't I don't want to be encouraging others to repeat that through this whole thing, there were times when it seemed as though, and I suppose this is a a legal thing. It's like a sport almost. You're competing in a sense. At times it seemed as though it was almost personal between you and Jerry and Ken Kratz. Was it? Well, you, you know, the the sporting metaphors are unavoidable, even though they're, they're usually misleading. Um, I mean, a, a trial is not sport, but there's no question that the advocates in a trial, especially if they're good and they care about the outcome, um, become personally invested in it. And a, a trial is stressful. It's intense. Um, it, it's an adversarial system, so there are sharp disagreements. And um, you, know, you know, in every in every trial, you you wind up um, probably rubbing some skin raw on your opponent. One of the most puzzling things and probably infuriating to a lot of people watching was the press conference in which he laid out 
the crime with the the caveat that children should should hide and not be listening to this on TV that seemed to not really much of it anyway not really be brought up in court at least the same storyline didn't seem to be presented that that was the opinion we got how did that press conference how did doing that play among the legal community there well it would depend on who you asked it it's a press conference you're quite right that was lurid graphic and that haunted um the state and and was widely echoed and replayed and excerpted for the 10 months between that press conference and the start of Stephen Avery's trial. And you're also right that the state at Stephen Avery's trial never presented the story, uh, the, you know, this frightful version that the press conference laid out. The reason for that, I think, is that it was factually unsupportable unsupported and unsupportable. Uh, there was no evidence to support, no physical evidence, you know, no trace evidence to support the key pieces of that graphic, you know, depiction of a crime. And that, uh, and that did haunt the proceedings, and I think it eroded the presumption of innocence for Stephen Avery in every one of Wisconsin's 72 counties. Do you believe that that moment poisoned a lot of the jury pool? Yes. That that had a significant impact on the result? Well, I don't know about the impact, but, you know, when, when, when you start with a tainted jury pool, you don't necessarily remove that taint ever because the, the predispositions that people acquire often are really imperceptible even to them. You know, we, we, we unconsciously draw a conclusion or, you know, reach a tentative judgment about what's happened, and now, now you're working with a presumption of guilt, not a presumption of innocence, and that can make all the difference. Um, whether it actually turns the outcome, who can say? Um, but there's a big difference between pushing a rock up a hill and pushing a rock down a hill. And, um, you know, either way, the rock may get where it's where you're trying to push it, but um, there's a difference. You mentioned the jury. There have been reports in recent days or weeks that one of the jury members may have been a volunteer sheriff's department staff and another may have been related to someone from the town or from the sheriff's office. How, if that's true... How did those people get through the vetting process and not get knocked off the the jury pool before it got that far? Well, there was the, the what I recall is that there was a juror who ended up serving among the twelve, who was the father of a Manitowoc County Sheriff's deputy, and it's a good question, you know, how does he get through that? And I'll tell you, he gets through by answering the judge's questions in a way that persuades the judge that he's not biased, that there isn't cause to excuse him, that he, that he can be fair, that he can decide the case based on what he hears in the courtroom. Now then, then the lawyers get a chance to strike him anyway, but we only get a handful of strikes. You know, in any jurisdiction, you don't get unlimited strikes without cause. 
So you, you never really pick a jury. What you do is you unpick the people you most don't want to serve on the jury. And when you've unpicked six, for example, in Wisconsin, you're, you're, you're stuck with who's left. So you, you haven't picked a jury. You've only unpicked those potential jurors you least want to serve. And that's how this can happen. You are, and we just have a couple of minutes left here, but you are, um, I've read a number of places, trying to use this moment of fame, however long it lasts for you now, with the, with making a murderer, to advance some causes and to raise some issues about the justice system. What are those? What are you trying to do? What What would you like to come out of this opportunity you have? In very general terms, Scott, I'd, I'd like to encourage the system in which I work to examine itself and to promote humility as a value to a higher place than it presently occupies in the hierarchy of of values and to demote finality for its own sake, finality of judgments from the very high place in that same hierarchy of values that it now holds. I think we need to retemper and recalibrate the balance between finality for finality's sake on the one hand and the humility to recognize that this is a human system that humans make mistakes, they get things wrong, they err, and that they should try to correct those mistakes when they can, especially when people's lives are affected or even destroyed by the ongoing impact of those errors. And that, that's a, that's a, I realize that's sort of a global answer in a short period of time, but if I, if I had to put it succinctly, that's how I would put it. If you knew 10 years ago when you were involved in this, not knowing there was going to be this show that came out in this response, if you knew back then what was going to happen, would you have still signed up for this? Yes. To represent Stephen Avery? Yes. I mean, if you're serious about defending people accused of crimes, that is where you want to be. You don't want to shirk the hard cases. You want to, you want to head to the hard cases. It, it also has uh, has changed your life, I have to believe, though. I'm guessing that probably before this all came out, there were not websites uh, pointing to you and Jerry as uh, legal sex symbols and uh, (laughs) and a variety of other things that are now uh, very, very kindly uh, towards you guys. Your guess would be right. There wasn't. Your guess would be exactly right. Wisconsin did not not have the uh, the website for the uh, the Dean Strang uh, sex symbol site? I think not. (laughs) Is everybody in your area, since this has come out, is every person charged with a crime now calling your office wanting you to represent them? No. Really? No, they're, they're not. There are a lot of lawyers. <laughs> no. uh, I would have uh, thought that this would have been the, the, the turn on the phones and the lineup would have been forming outside the door after this. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Really? <laughs> could, could we see you if no, there... And, and I don't expect it to do that. And, and honestly, I have a pretty low-volume practice, and I, I want to keep it that way. I'd rather have fewer cases and spend more time on them. If there was to be an appeal that went through, could we ever see you representing Stephen Avery again? Would that be something that you would potentially be interested in doing? I, that's purely speculative, but... Um, I guess, are I you fatigued Stephen with this case by now? I, I believe in Stephen. I think I know the case. And, you know, I'd 
I, I think I'd like to see both me and the system have a second chance if it ever came to that. The uh, I just say a, uh, a tweet that just came out now that uh, making a murderer Stephen Avery files new wide-ranging appeal. That apparently just moved on Twitter as we're talking right now. So who knows exactly what that means? We'll have to follow that. Um, if he got, just as I let you go, Dean, and I really appreciate all the time today, if he got a new trial, if there was an appeal, what kind of, after everything that's happened now, what kind of media circus would that be? Substantial. A free ring circus, maybe, to, to carry that analogy. Um, it would. It, it would be, I mean, uh, maybe not rising, I wouldn't necessarily think, to the OJ level, but it, it would be as crazy as the law could probably get, correct? Yeah, I, 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 I think there would be robust public interest, <laughs> uh, as expressed by the media. How's that for a lawyerly answer? It is, uh, we could do this for another uh, two or three hours. There's a million things that, uh, that I'd love to ask and that I know that listeners would love to ask. I've been getting emails and tweets and everything else for, ask him this, ask him this, but we do have to let you go. But listen, I, I really appreciate the time today, and it's been, uh, it, it's been fun to watch this. It's been insanely aggravating to watch it. I'm sure I share, like a lot of people, you watch and you just get uh, outraged and upset and disbelief and everything else, but uh, what a... Um, what an unbelievable documentary, and uh, I appreciate you taking some time today to share your thoughts on it. Thanks again, Scott, and stay warm in Hamilton. Uh, yeah, you too in Wisconsin. I'm sure it's uh, it's no better there. Dean Strang from uh, from the show Making a Murderer, the one of the two lawyers for Stephen Avery.